Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Guts and Grind. We're excited that you joined us. Thanks for clicking. We have a great show for you today. My name is Sajan Abraham. I'm here with Siju Koshi. Siju, who are we interviewing today? We are interviewing none other than Bo Guidry. Super excited about this interview. He just has a bunch, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, in just all different types of uh, assets. I mean, short-term, long-term, even did Section 8 out of town. I mean, you name it. It's I'm, I'm super stoked and I'm, I know you are too. So I'm, I'm really excited by getting this interview going. You're listening to Guts and Grind with Siju and Sajin, making the real estate journey accessible to anyone. All right, welcome back to the show. We are excited. We are going to be interviewing Bo Guidry. He is one of our uh, friends here that actually is investing in real estate, and we are excited to hear about his story. Bo, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first, thanks. Uh, I'm honored to uh, be on the podcast. Uh, big fan, you guys. So thanks for having me on. Background, I, I come from an IT background, have a degree in computer science, and uh, you know, started out you know, just from the ground up, uh, breaking into the technology field, finally latched on uh, in the healthcare industry and uh, worked there for some odd 20, 20 years. Yeah, it's, wow. uh, it's, it's funny because so Saj, I, I think I kind of hinted a little bit to it, but me and Bo used to work together. Uh, that's how we, we kind of stayed in contact. But uh, we, we had these discussions about real estate probably 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> 15 to 20 <laughs> years ago, we were talking about. No, um, that's awesome. It's cool because like, you see in 20 years what could really happen, right? And so those conversations can be, you know, develop into actual things that we do, right? So I'm kind of curious, like, you know, you were in the IT world, like why real estate? Like, why did you think that that's the way that you should go? Like, is there any backstory on that? Or like, why don't you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, it actually is. You know, I had a real hard start uh, uh, getting employment in in IT. You know, if I would have known what I've known, what I know now, I've never got a four-year formal degree in technology. I always tell people that, but you know, it just took a long time and it didn't help when I, when I actually graduated, it was like 2003 market downturn, not a whole lot of opportunities for employment where people were going to give you on a, on a job training. So I, where I invested in formal education, I, I always kind of felt like, hey, this just isn't stable. You hear about people getting laid off, you know, the dot-com crashes. Technology is always my passion, but that just let me know that, hey, you know, there has to be something else that can give you stability. I've always been into ownership. I want to own something. I want to own it all if I can. (laughs) Uh, And I like the idea of, you know, early on, I I think I understood that, you know, when you work for a living, your biggest expense is your home. That that's your biggest cost of living. So if if you can leverage that in a way to get ahead, then it, it's you know you it, you can really reap the benefits of it. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome to hear that. It's like, was there were there resources that you listened to or read or something like that? What was the thing about real estate itself to actually dive into it? Like, because what you're saying is on point. But I feel like there's a lot of people, and and I'm guilty of this too. It's like you're in the atmosphere and you're kind of floating around and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. You're trying to get your career started and all these things. And not everyone falls into what you just said. Like the realization is what I mean, right? Like not everyone gets to fall into that realization of like, Hey, you know, like cost of living matters and my expenses matter. And like, how can I offset this somehow? Right? So what, was there a trigger in, in your life or something like that, that kind of pushed you towards real estate or was it just like, 
I'm on the hunt and then I stumbled upon it? Or like, what did that look like? Yeah. So it was two things. One, realizing how much money I was spending in rent, right? And, you know, I think everybody goes through that, right? You know, uh, you know, you finally move out of your parents' house and you get your own place. And you're like, wow, you know, it's it's expensive and it keeps going up. The other piece to that is one of my first business ventures was uh, breeding American pit bull terriers. Uh, back then, it was the bully style of American pit bull terriers, which they now refer to American bullies now. But you really needed a yard for that. You know, you, you can't, it's really tough doing it in an apartment. So I was wanted a house early on. I knew that I needed that to kind of help with, uh, you know, my, it was like a hobby because I used to breed and show, but it, you really need some space. You needed a yard, you needed some land. Yeah. And, and Bo, I know we talked a little bit before, but how did you kind of get started and did you end up owning uh, your, your first home first? And then you kind of transitioned into the rental market. Cause I know, yeah, I, you know, a lot of people, you, you, you pay the rent and you see, Hey, how much money is going out of your pocket and, and you own nothing. Right. So did you, did you transition by purchasing a first home and then kind of like hacking your way into to the rental market? Absolutely. I looked into, you know, I always felt like, hey, you know, you really should, everyone should start with purchasing their own home first. That's that's the first investment. But shortly after that, you know, I looked into investment properties and uh, realized, you know, how much you had to put down. It was 20%. And then I realized that, you know, hey, the easiest way to do this is when you get ready to move to that, to another home, then you just keep the, the property that you are already living in. And that's your first investment property. And, and to do that, you really need to live below your means. That's that's one of the strategies I, I use. It's very tempting. You know, the human nature, hey, we go out and buy the nicest house in the best neighborhood that we can buy, you know, even if we don't in, intend to do it. You know, when we start looking at the price sheets and talking to the builders, it just goes up and up. And I myself got caught in that also. And then I, I just realized, I said, you know what? And it was like right around 2008. And I hope I'm not jumping the gun here, but it's right around 2008 and the housing market crashed. I saw the the cost of properties go down, continue to go down. So it was come fast forward like 2012, you know, instead of buying that new construction and we, my wife and I, we had, were already building a home and, and uh, we had a dispute with the home builder and um, actually it goes, <laughs> I think I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself here. It was a little deeper. So my wife and I, we actually had uh, problems conceiving and we didn't know that until we were like working with the, the home builder to build, you know, uh, our next home. And I'd already bought my first home in uh, 2006. So, you know, thinking about the cost of IVF, not knowing how many times we would actually have to do that, I felt like it was really God talking to me. And that saying that, hey, you know, don't spend all of your money on the nicest house that you can afford because there are other things that come up. And if you really want to do real estate investing, you also need to have more cushion too. So we got in a dispute with the home builder and uh, started looking at, canceled the contract, started looking at foreclosure homes. And uh, we we bought a, a foreclosed home in a, a nice, what I thought was a nice neighborhood, needs some work, but something that strategically I felt like if this is the last house I ever buy, I would be fine with it. You know, it's enough room to grow with the family. If I have two kids, you know, 
uh, parents, in-laws come to visit. We're comfortable enough. And uh, that's what we did. What, I, was that was that in 2012? You said you, you, you made the move to, to buy that, that foreclosed home? Yes, that was in 2012. Yeah. And, you know, you hit a couple great points, which I think apply really heavily in this market now, because, you know, a lot of people struggling now because the interest rates are so high, the pr prices of homes are so high. And I feel like a lot of the um, the people that are trying to break into the home market, it's 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 a struggle for them to even to buy the house that they're dreaming of. Right. But you hit the great point of, you know, buy a home that's functional, right? Within, if it's even below your means, you're owning something, right? And then eventually when the markets go in your favor, you can always, right, either refinance that and then buy into a bigger, nicer home that will, you know, meet your specs according to the times, like as the cycles kind of change, right? So that that's that's actually pretty awesome. So, so from there, did you, your first house, did you actually put it on the rental market? The one before the, the foreclosure, is that, is that kind of how... I did. That. I did. So I, because the, the house was a foreclosure, you know, it was cheaper. It it definitely allowed us to keep the existing house that we were moving from, you know, have, have more reserves to carry that on, which, you know, I, I found out I, I needed. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, we put that on the market and, and rented it. And the, the odd thing, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but, you know, 2028 to like 2012, when the housing market was depressed, housing prices were down, but rent was up because a lot of the people that foreclosed, they couldn't move into apartments. They needed a house with multiple rooms. Yeah. So there was a lot of people looking for single family homes to rent. And that really drove the price up. So let me ask, like, so was the rental house like a happy accident? Because you were going to move and it just made sense. Or was it, was that the intention from the beginning? Were you like, no, we are going to live in this house for a little bit. We're going to upgrade a little bit. And then we're going to make this into a rental. And that's our foray into being landlords. Yeah. That that was the intention to always keep that rental property. But I, I think, you know, in hindsight, looking back, that if I had not gone to and purchase a cheaper foreclosure to move into as the next house, I would have been stretching myself with the, keeping that rental and carrying the mortgage on that brand new construction with the higher taxes. So it's it's it's, it's crazy fun. how things happen in life, and you know, like circumstances that might look kind of dim and stuff, kind of shine a light on things in your life where you need to like, oh, hey, I need to force myself to build margin. And I feel like everything that you were saying was like margin is important in your life. You you need yeah. space in your life to have breathing room to be able to make certain moves. And if something comes up, you have yeah. the resources to be able to come in and take care of it. Right. And so I, I think that's a great lesson for anyone listening that might be starting off. Don't dive off the deep end. Like we're not trying to say, don't, don't be scared, but at the same time, be smart in your personal finances to know, Hey, I have enough margin to float the note. Like if I were to move and make my old house into a rental property, I have enough money to float the note until I get a tenant in place and all that good stuff. So yeah. valuable lessons, man. I I think, and you know, like as we walk through these journeys and sharing these stories, I feel like it's valuable because someone else that's listening is probably going through that same situation. Right. And so hearing you say it is a, is a big deal, right? It's a big deal to say, all right, if he went through that and he made it out on the other side alive, like I could do it too. Right. So that's, that's a great thing to share. Well, the, the one one point I also want to kind of uh, unpack a little bit more is the um, the finances piece of it, right? So you did say, hey, we had to 
readjust the way we think, right? And and kind of tighten our finances. Did you kind of have to sit with your wife down and 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 say, hey, listen, we got to kind of tighten this up, you know, our belt on some of these expenses, and you know, this this is kind of where we're focused, or or kind of how did you handle that internally? Or do, are oh, you of course, that? she was she wasn't with the plan at all. <laughs> it's <laughs> no, trust me, that, that was a hard conversation to uh, you know actually you know sit for hours and weeks, you know, building, you know, a nice new brand new construction, all the amenities, and then have, you know, the conversation with your wife. Hey, uh, baby, I don't think this is what we should do. I think we should go look at this foreclosure with holes all in the wall. And, you know, it's, (laughs) yeah, she, she wasn't feeling that at, at first, but she did see, see the bigger picture. You know, one of the things, and just to, to kind of, you know, give all give more details. It really was a domino effect of good decisions because one of the things is that first home that I purchased, I bought it in in 2006. Uh, this was right after Katrina, and that was right before the housing market bubble burst. And you know, here it is. I'm I'm looking to buy my first home, and you know, I see I, I steadily see how expensive homes are, are getting. And uh, I purchased that first house for one hundred and fourteen thousand, which which doesn't seem like a lot of money today by the day standards. But this was you know two thousand and six, so you know that, that was a lot of money back then. And I swear, you know, two years later, by 2008, that same house was only worth like $77,000. I was like, wow, man, I watched housing prices climb steady where I didn't have enough money to buy one. As soon as I have enough money to buy one, they tank. But even that was a blessing because what happened was my taxes went down. The Harris County Assessor noticed the foreclosures in our neighborhood and kept reducing the appraised value of the home. So, you know, this house that I was paying almost $1,100 for a month with mortgage taxes and insurance ended up going getting as low as like $800 a month at one point with the, the escrow. Wow. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, we were, and we were in no rush to move. So we had, me, my wife and I, we had good jobs at the time, no kids. So we used that as an opportunity to save as much money as we, we could for a down payment on the next house. And as we were just watching the market, I mean, we didn't, we didn't even talk about leaving, I think, to like another four or some odd years. But, you know, buying that foreclosure, being able to save that money and buy a foreclosure, we were able to put 20% down and do it on the next home and, and do a 15-year mortgage. Wow. And I would imagine there's this thing called lifestyle creep. And I think this would factor into that as well, because your cost was 1100 and it went down to 800 It takes a lot of discipline to not spend that that margin, right? It takes a lot of discipline to be like, hey, man, we're rich now, man. We got a little bit extra coin in our pocket. Let's go out to eat a little bit more. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. To have the discipline to tuck that away for the next house is very commendable. And I think that's a lesson that everyone could like learn from. But uh, you said you bought a foreclosure, right? And I'm assuming you had to uh, do some repairs and stuff like that. What was it? A house that you're able to purchase traditionally, like you put the 20% down and go with a big bank and kind of do that? Or did you have to do hard money? Or, or like, what did that look like to actually get that purchase so you could 
still hold the old house and, st and and buy the new one and fix it up. Right. It was a HUD foreclosure. I want to say, yeah, we did do a conventional loan because we did 20% down. We were able to avoid the PMI uh, and we had enough reserves to actually do the uh, rehab ourselves. So that, that really helped. And it was all in an effort to keep the mortgage, you know, reoccurring the mortgage for monthly mortgage low as low as possible and still do the, the 15 year. Uh, term on it. Yeah. Wow. And, and for those on the call, the um, the PMI, basically the, the mortgage insurance for anybody that has a loan out there, that's anything paid less than, I guess, 20% of the value of the home. The mortgage companies usually add a, a mortgage interest on there. So that's what, what PMI is. So if you pay 20% down, they won't charge the, the mortgage interest. Yeah. That's uh, 200 some odd thousand dollar house. I think PMI is like, you know, it can vary anywhere between like $75 to $150 extra a month. So it yeah, month, really yeah. it's not chump change, you know, like yeah. every little bit you could save and, and the, mo the more that's going towards your equity is always ideal. Right. So, man, that's awesome. And so was it a journey? I don't know if this is getting too personal, but was it a journey to get your wife on board with this plan? I mean, because it seemed like you had the idea, <laughs> hey, we're, we're going to buy a house, live in it for a little bit, move on to the next one and make that a rental. And then like the whole shift of like, hey, we're buying this brand new build and all this stuff and that kind of, hey, that's not going to work out. So we're going to get this foreclosure. Like, <laughs> was it pulling teeth or was she on board or like, like, oh, like, yeah. what did that look like? How'd you convince her? Oh, man. Yeah. She, uh, she didn't like me for a while. Uh, <laughs> she, and you know, I, I get it. It, it was a, a huge emotional shift. You know, look at this brand new, beautiful neighborhood that, you know, we're going to every day, talking to the home builder, doing specs, picking things out, you know, a media room, three-car garage, oh, it's everything we want, you know, and then saying, hey, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't like the way this is playing out. I think there's something else here that, you know, God is telling us we need to go a different direction and it, it'll be better for us in the long term. She did ultimately see the bigger picture. She grudgingly went alone, but hey, when she went alone and then, you know, after a while, she got into the place and, and realized, you know, after we, you know, and we didn't, I mean, we didn't have to put like 50 grand in the, the, the rehab or anything, you know, just to get it livable and decent. I think we put like maybe 15 grand in, 15 to 20 at the most. She soon saw, you know, the, the value in that. Like, man, you know, we saved a lot of money, you know, not only for the uh, on the property itself, but the the taxes uh, that we paid because it's a lower tax rate versus a new construction. So she was she was well on board and, and thankful that uh, I I came up with the idea and and we all went along with it. So Bo, to fast forward, the so you guys have since then have you expanded on your uh, rental portfolio, and if so, what kind, what kind of properties have you purchased, and and where, if you don't mind. We we have uh, we did. I got into Airbnbs, short short term rentals in New Orleans. So I had the the long term rental in the house that we moved out, and and that that was a rocky start at first, but it it smoothed out, and we had a, a great long term uh, tenant there. For a while, and then I got in the uh, short term in those Airbnbs, and uh, I was really just leasing them at the time, uh, getting a feel for it, learning what the market is like, and uh, I, I realized uh, how much higher the the, uh, the the margins are with Airbnbs at the time. This was maybe 2014, 2015, I think, and uh, I I 
got up to three properties as as a lease but in new orleans the the short-term rentals the laws around it and jurisdictions are constantly changing so the the building that i was leasing from we had we had to move out of there and by then i had enough knowledge to understand how to run and maintain short-term rentals and and research the laws to understand what kind of permits i need to do it bought a condo right at the edge of the french quarter where I could get a, a full-time short-term rental commercial license. And from there, I bought uh, a fourplex. In that, I just do long-term renting. What made you shift into the Airbnb space? So 2014, I assume that's, that's Airbnb was very new at the time. How, like, how did you come about the, the idea of, hey, maybe that, that's, that's a good opportunity? And and it sounds like you kind of did the whole Airbnb arbitrage, right? You just started leasing first and then using that as a as a, right. as a segue. Right, right. That's exactly it. Yeah, I, I had uh I had some uh people that I knew that were actually doing it and highly recommended it. It was a big thing in New Orleans at the time. Uh, was, was still kind of is. A lot of people soured on it because of the local municipalities uh, changing a lot of the laws. But yeah, that, that's how I got into it. You know, and that's why you have to network, network you have to talk to people, see what, what works, what doesn't. And then at the end of the day, you just have to, you know, take a gamble, roll the dice on it. Can I ask um, the rolling the dice thing? Like, I, I get that. But like, how long did it take you to say or or what? What level of convincing did you need for it? Because you said you had friends that did it, right? And so mm -hmm. were they willing enough to share like, hey, this is how much I'm making or this is how, like, this is exactly how I made this happen and you could do it too? Or they're just like, oh yeah, I'm doing it. Like, like, what was the level of confidence you needed to actually dive in? Because the arbitrage game, like, so I'm only, I, personally, I'm only used to doing long-term rentals. And I know that there's a lot of money to be made with this short-term rental game, but I'm just not confident enough. So like, what, what did it take for you to get, you know, to push over, out of the long term or not even out of the long term, but like add that into your your game plan. Yeah. So it was it was actually a relative. Uh, oh, OK. So, you know, I had a level of confidence in what they were saying. They did share some numbers with me. And uh, he was a relative that I knew did long term running also. And he was saying, you know, hey, you know, compared to long term running, the short term running is much more lucrative. So that that really, you know, gave me a sense of confidence, but also a partnership because, you know, especially something like short-term rentals, things can change very quickly. And to minimize the risk, you know, partnerships are really good because, you know, if something happens, the city shuts you down, says, hey, we don't allow short-term rentals in this building or the man building management decides, hey, we don't want to do this anymore. You know, there's a lot of upstart costs that you can lose. So I have a good friend that I pulled in, said, hey, you know, do you want to do a partnership on this? We start with one, see how it goes, uh, if there's money to be made. And uh, he was like, sure, you know, someone I, I trust. And uh, you know, we went forward. The first one was good. And then, you know, we decided to build up to three from there. That is awesome. That That's so cool. Um, when you were doing this arbitrage, is this something that you specifically talk to the landlord? Are you saying, hey, this is our intention. This is exactly what we're going to do because I'm assuming you just, you're, you're leasing the property from a landlord and then you furnish right. it and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you lease it, you furnish it and you put it on Airbnb or other platforms 
and then you just manage it essentially, right? And so right. is there a conversation with that landlord ahead of time or do you just say, hey, I'm draining it and whatever I do with it is what I do with it? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, so back then, they, I don't, you know, I don't even think they, people will use the term Airbnb arbitrage back then, right? And it definitely wasn't as formal as it is now. The building that uh, we were leasing from, it was really geared to people doing short-term rentals. I mean, they had lockboxes, building. I mean, hardly anyone that actually leased there actually lived there. It was in the French Quarter and they didn't have any laws, local laws about short-term renting at the time. And the city uh, really started cracking down on that and putting things up. So really it was, it, it was a conversation with the management, but knowing that the property allows it and, you know, as long as, hey, you're not late with your rent, you keep up, you don't cause any problems, that they're not going to have a problem with you. Gotcha, gotcha. And so in your opinion, what's your feelings on, because like if it felt like it, it, there was a good wave of Airbnb, now things are cracking down, so the game is a little bit different. Do you still think that there's meat in the bone in, in short-term rentals, or is that something that's kind of fading away? Like, what's your personal opinion on that? It's definitely maturing. It's maturing in any industry that, that matures. I think there's still opportunity there. It's just that, you know, the people operating have to grow with it. Markets are different. New Orleans, to me, the safe bet is acquiring commercially zoned real estate. Those have the best zoning for uh, permits where you can operate it full time, uh, you don't have to have a homestead exemption or, or live on site. Houston, the, the laws are really liberal about, you know, where you can Airbnb or short-term rental. It, and it's it's the the state or, you know, your counties, I don't think they, they really have any laws to it, but they kind of let the HOAs and uh, the more local jurisdictions deal with it. And because of that, there's a lot more Airbnbs in Houston at the moment. And I think we saw a wave right after COVID kind of subsided with the YouTubers going online saying, hey, this is how you do it. You know, it's a how-to video and it's great, right? You know, everybody can jump in, but the floodgates open and I think the Houston market got saturated. And when that happened, you saw a lot of people get in and then a lot of people trying to get out. They're trying to sublease to you or sell their furniture. I'm, I'm uh, part of several groups and I haven't done any Airbnb in the Houston area yet, but I've seen that uh, some people that I think were more established and kind of knew the strategy around it and saw things change and were able to adapt. I think they're still making money. But I think there's a lot of people that got hit hard in Houston. And then people are always in New Orleans. It's always a struggle just because of the permits and the, the zoning and the way the city chooses to enforce or not enforce. So are you still in the short term game at, uh, in the New Orleans area or are you kind of pivoting or with the, with the way the markets are? Because obviously, I, I think, you know, you alluded to a little bit, you know, the, the markets being saturated with a bunch of Airbnbs. I think that's happening across the board, right? Because there's, you know, this whole wave of uh, YouTube influencers and all that that occur bringing people online. But um, are you still, uh, you know, kind of going down the short term route in uh, New Orleans or have you kind of pivoted strategies? So I am, I'm still bullish on short-term rentals in New Orleans, uh, but for commercially zoned real estate, the problem is there's just not a whole lot of viable commercially zoned real estate out there. 
uh, you know, it has to be in a desirable area. There are a few things that I'm looking at and working on from that perspective. But during COVID, I, you know, I quickly realized I couldn't go all in on Airbnbs because that property got hit hard with, you know, the lockdowns. I mean, New Orleans is all about being around the crowd and, you know, a festival, Mardi Gras. So during those lockdowns, I mean, we didn't hardly have anybody coming through. And it, it wasn't immediate, so it was good. And I had reserves to kind of last me, but, it, you know, it, it did get to the point where I was, I was in the red, you know, for more than a several months uh, before we built income again. But it, it made me realize that I had to diversify my, my portfolio. I was just coming off of a new construction bill, ground up construction, just buying a, a lot, a piece of land and uh, subcontracting with a builder to build a spec home and selling it. And that went okay. I learned some things from there and I was kind of, you know, weary, kind of houses for sale right when the pandemic kicked off. So, you know, everybody was kind of didn't know what to expect. But as we know, it eventually came back around and, you know, it started pricing wars for houses. But I ended up selling the house kind of right before that. But I did realize that, you know, I want the steady cash flow. And during that time with the eviction moratoriums, the people that did the best were the, the ones that had like section eight rentals, you know, the government money coming in. And that's what prompted me to buy a fourplex. And uh, I take section eight on that because I just want that safety net of knowing that that money and that rent is going to be paid every month. That's that fourplex you said you bought in New Orleans, right? I, uh, I believe after the Airbnb ar arbitrage, right? Right. Okay. And do you still have that? And I assume you're still kind of doing long-term with that? Yeah. Yes. That's a long-term uh, rental. So just to recap, so you've done single family, long-term rental, you've done Airbnb arbitrage, you've done multifamily. And so, so are we missing anything? Like you've got a good range of things that you've been doing. Like that's a great amount of experience to be able to like have under your belt. You built yeah, a so spec you, home too, by the way. Yep. Ground oh, up. You built, you built up a spec home. Yeah. Yep. And so, and that was a built up and flip, right? Is, is that what that was? Correct. Wow, that's yeah, great, that's dude. Awesome, that's a, yeah. like, can you uh, expand a little bit more on that? Like, what gave you the idea to buy a lot and build? I mean, I could see the reasons why, but personally, man, that sounds very intimidating. What's the yeah. story behind that? Yeah, it was. So the deal with that was, you know, I, I was still working full time and uh, fixing flips, they can take a, a lot of time. You know, you know, you have an existing house, but you really need to be there for the contractors make sure work is happening, make sure people not, aren't stealing out of it. That, you know, I didn't want the headache or the time that that would take. So I decided to purchase a lot. And in here, you know, a lot of my investing has been in New Orleans, actually. And I have saw the property values just keep climbing. And I think that's what attracted me to invest there. So I, I bought a, a lot at a, a, a auction and... <laughs> You know, even though it was an auction, one thing I realized, like, man, I don't think these prices are any different than what things will sell on MLS, you know. And that was kind of, you know, during the time where things were still crazy price. I mean, I think this was like 2014, I think, maybe, or 2016, 2015, 2016. My dates are kind of getting off, man. They kind of run together. But I, I purchased that lot, and I, I didn't start building on to maybe like a year later. And that property, I knew that if I just get a home builder or a, a construction company contract to, to build a home on an existing lot and sell it, there's money to be made where I wouldn't have to be so hands-on and, uh, you know, I'm just letting my money 
work for me, basically. What did that look like? I mean, did you negotiate a flat per square footage, I guess, build price? Or was it just a full on like build price that they said, hey, this is, it's going to be a 1500 square foot home. This is the price. And then oh, you're hoping we, that. We went back and forth and so many times with the builder trying to get, I took the approach of just, just like me as a consumer going to buy a home in a subdivision and saying, hey, this is a lot I want to built on, give me this floor plan, this model. Like I wanted it all in writing. What are the floors going to look like? Or, you know, what, if I can't choose from, you know, a sample you have here, well, tell me what is my floor allowance? And then tell me how many square feet I have to cover. So, so I know, like, you know, give me a square foot allowance so I can go and look in uh, floor and decor and pick something out. Tell me what kind of appliances. It has to be in the contract. You know, all the little details, finishes, you know, countertops. And the, the builder I worked with, you know, they were really kind of dragging their feet in. They didn't want to put that in writing because, you know, I felt like they didn't want to do it. They were playing hardball because they didn't know what their costs were going to end up being. And that would have been a way that they can kind of weasel out of things, I felt like. But I held them accountable to it to say, no, I'm not moving forward until it's all in the contract. That's why it kind of took a very long time before we started construction. But I, I will say this, I went with a larger, probably more expensive builder that does commercial and residential and had been in the area for a very long time. And actually had a reference that, that same uh, relative uh, that had them do some work. They, they were not the cheapest, but my thinking was, if something goes wrong, they're a larger established company that they can eat that cost versus me or versus just abandoning the job. And then that that would really sink me. And that's what happens a lot. You know, you may get a, a smaller company that, you know, has a better price or they're more they're nicer on the phone and you talk to them and you work with them. But when something goes wrong, they just can't take the financial hit. And what happened, and this was a, a kind of interesting story, this was right around the time, are you all familiar with the uh, Hard Rock Hotel in New Orleans on Canal Street that collapsed? <laughs> we, yeah. we know about the Hard Rock, but I didn't know it collapsed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, Hard Rock, they're, they're building a brand new hotel right down Canal Street, which is right on the edge of the fridge quarter, right? And it's right around where my Airbnb is. And um, they were like, I get thinking about halfway through the construction and the whole building just collapsed, killed a, a bunch of people. And, you know, with something like that, the first thing you think about is permitting. Okay. You know, who... Where were they at in permitting? Who were who was doing the inspections? Because obviously something wasn't stable, something was missed. Well, when that happened, the city of New Orleans swooped in and started enforcing, you know, per the inspections and for permits very strictly and, and making sure that they were enforcing everything on the books. Well, in Orleans Parish, you know, that's with the parish, the predominant parish in New Orleans, they started enforcing a permit to uh 
create a driveway. And it was just, just some kind of crazy rule about the way a driveway had to be curved around a fire hydrant that was within 10 feet or something like that. Well, the home builder who's been operating the ones for decades never pulled a driveway permit, all of a sudden got told by New Orleans City Permits, hey, you didn't, you did, you pulled that driveway before you got a permit for it. You need to redo it. And they had to manipulate it and cut around it. I mean, it, it came out, the way it came, I wasn't pleased the way it looked at all, but I ended up getting in a dispute with the builder because they were trying to make me eat the cost on that because we couldn't get a certificate of occupancy until it got addressed. But I said, no, I'm not going to do this. Hey, man, you know, it, it's you, your job to pull the permits, know the permits, pull it, and hey, you know, I, I hear it, you know, it, they're enforcing something they've never enforced before, but if it's on the books and that's what they're holding you to, it I'm not eating the cost on this. But they ultimately went forward and uh, redid the driveway and they took the financial hit on that. So uh, I think it was good decision going with someone that was more established. And even though they, they were still kind of a pain to deal with, we worked it all out. Was it a, was it a profitable venture at the end of the day when, you, when you're talking about when you sold, sold it all in, you think it came it, out? It was. And I learned a lot. So I made about $10,000 on it. That wasn't bad to say that I, I didn't have to be there. You know, I didn't have to probably, you know, do anything physically. I could still work a full time job that was old, well over 40 hours a week. But I had someone breaking and steel copper. And oh. yeah. And I was thinking, oh, you know, copper was going to cost me an extra thousand or whatever. But no, it was like, hey, it was going to be uh, like 15 grand. Uh, or I think it was like 15 to 20 grand because of the damage that they did. So I'm like, what? Okay, so hey, I have uh, insurance. Great. So I filed an insurance claim and insurance denied it, stating that, uh, and I had builder's insurance. They stated that they didn't know this was investment property. If I planned to live in the property, then it, it would be fine. You know, it, they would cover it. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, um. I I never heard of such, you know, and I was like, and so I called my my agent at the time and uh, he told me, he was like, all you had to do was tell him that you were going to live in. It's like, what? <laughs> look, man. Yeah. Look, hey, all you had to do is sell me the appropriate insurance, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I got into another big dispute about that. Uh, long story short, uh, I had a file with the uh, state of Louisiana Insurance Commission and they told me to file with the insurance agent's insurance company, their insurance, as a claim. So <laughs> the insurance company came back and they said, hey, we think that both you and the agent are responsible because, because you signed a, a document stating that something of the such that it wasn't investment property or something. You know, they see these long documents when you're signing and agreeing to the insurance. And I'm looking at the numbers. Uh, I'm, not, You know, I, I look at the fine print. I usually do, but somewhere buried in it, they had something stated about me not being an investor or something or planning to live in it or something, right? And they said, based on that, they felt like I should have known, but the agent should have done the due diligence to specifically ask me that to know the difference and make sure that he wasn't selling me insurance that didn't cover me. So they said they would pay me half of the payout, which worked out 
minus the deductible because I talked to lawyers and they were telling me that I had, you know, I had to pay them 25% of whatever I'm awarded and it allowed me to keep going. So long story short, you know, sometimes things are supposed to be easy. They don't end up that easy, but you just kind of stay resilient and keep working through. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, you've had a wealth of experience, man. Like you, you've had a lot of uh, bruises along the way, but it seems like it's still a worthwhile endeavor. Like if you don't mind asking, you've done all these different types of real estate deals. Oh, wait, just to answer the original question. Oh, it, sorry. Had the, that whole fiasco with the insurance and the copper theft not happened, that the profit would have been twice. I, I would have probably made $25,000 profit as opposed to 10. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, I mean, but to still walk away with some profit that, I mean, that's great, but it's even with that big hit, like that's a, that's crazy. Right. So yeah, I was, I was going to ask with all of the strategies and methods that you've done in real estate, which one is your preferred method? Like, like which way is the best way of doing it in your opinion? I'm still trying to figure that out, man. It's, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, really, I think for anybody to be successful, they have to diversify. You you can't be a, a one trick pony. You know, I, I like Airbnb. I like, I like the high profit margins and they're usually in nice areas, highly desirable. But I, I don't like being that vulnerable to pandemics. Maybe we'll never see another pandemic right. again, but in our lifetime. But I don't know that. I'm still feeling, <laughs> you know, the pinch of the last pandemic. I like Section 8 rentals too, man. I tell you what, a lot of people talk negative about Section 8 and, oh, it's not worth the problem, the kind of people you deal with. And, of course, there can be some casualties, but... So far, my experience has been good. I tell you what, there's a lot of people on Section 8 that are used to landlords or property managers not respecting them, not uh, maintaining the property like they should. And that creates tension. And, you know, the tenants I talked to and the applicants, they were just really thankful, you know, for a property manager or landlord that's actually repairing things, providing a nice, clean place to live. And to me, that's fulfilling. We talk about it all the time, Saj and I, and that, and you, you hit it right on the nail, Bo. It's, you know, it's a two-way street, right? A, a landlord and a, a tenant, right? So you're providing a service, they're paying for service, right? And the expectation should be the same on both sides, right? Like we give you the property in a certain condition, we expect it back in the same condition. And I think you're right, like in human nature, right? If you respect each other, right? That that respect goes across both ways. And, you know, they're, they're more willing to pay the rent if, if the property's taken care of, if the property's in, in, in its best condition. And so I completely agree with you on that. And that goes home because that's for anybody that actually is going to try to get into the rental game. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. Like it's a, I know it's easy to make this like a house business, like we're dealing with real estate, but it's actually a people business, right? And if you take care of your people, your people will take care of you. I, I've had a section eight tenants in the past as well. And I've had great experience with the actual tenant. The tenant it's, uh, herself, like she was amazing. She kept the house clean, very respectful. Everything was so good. But I did have hiccups with the actual government side of it, like getting it approved to become Section 8. Once you get over those hurdles, it's actually pretty awesome. Like, I mean, it's a great experience once you get over those hurdles of becoming qualified to be Section 8 housing. But, yeah. oh my gosh, it was like pulling teeth. I, I mean, I have war stories from that. But like, but yeah, I agree with you, man. Like, I, I think the tenants get a bad rap. Like people have, you know, like 
for some reason, they have a bad connotation of Section 8 tenants, but the people are people. Like, they want a good house to live in. They want a safe place. I mean, we're all the same, you know? Like, we all want a good place to live. And if you provide a good product, they'll take care of it, you know? Yeah. And there's always outliers everywhere, right? But, I mean, I think it's it's fair to give people a chance. What's your, what's your goal for the next one to three years, real estate-wise? I mean, is it to keep increasing doors, purchasing more property? What's the goal here? Yeah, you know I would like to buy another multifamily property in a, a nice area in New Orleans, somewhere where my wife and I can maybe retire or just, you know, maybe when the kids uh, graduate, we go live out there or stay there, you know, summers, somewhere that we can actually live and, you know, pay off. And, you know, I, I like I like the idea of multifamily because, you look at the cost of living per unit, it's much lower than single family. So I, I'm a big believer in the power of multifamily. And there's, in New Orleans, there's a lot of multifamily. In Houston, uh, not so much, but they do exist. But, you know, something like four units and up uh, to get the cost down and uh, something that I could just pay off long-term. If it, you know, I, I, I don't like buying property, even if it's nice, I don't like buying property that doesn't cash flow. That's my golden rule because I feel like my property should take care of me. If I ever got in the jam, not me taking care of the property because I'm doing so well to keep it afloat. And, um, and don't get me wrong, uh, you know, a lot of other people, you know, they break even and, you know, they turn around and they, they're able to sell said property, you know, at a hundred thousand dollar profit in only a few years. We just, you know, that's the kind of market we've been in. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't want to roll the dice on that being it. So I like to buy things that cash flow. And if if it's somewhere that I would actually like to live, that's that's my idea, ideal next term, next uh, long term property that I buy. Nice, nice. Okay. Well, I, I got another curveball for you. All right. Let's say you lost it all. Like you got this portfolio right now. You lost it all. You still have the knowledge. That you have right now, but you lost all the properties somehow, whatever. You only had a thousand bucks to start it all over again. What would you do? What would be your first step with that thousand dollars to get back on track in real estate? Man, can can you do anything with a thousand dollars in real estate, man? I mean, <laughs> that's why it's a curveball. <laughs> oh god, man, I'd have to go get another job. Um, I tell you what, I mean, and and I don't know if you need more than a thousand dollars to do this, but I would definitely house hack. You know. Live in a property, a multifamily property that had, you know, they, they can take everything away from you, right? You know, financially, but what they can't take away from you is experience and knowledge. So I know how to manage a property with long-term tenants, short-term tenants, Airbnb, whatever it may be. So I would house hack. I would buy a property where I could just live in one unit almost for free and, you know, have the other units pay for that property and just try to build up from there. Yeah. Good answer. That's a good, you know what you passed. It's a, it's a good, that's a good answer. <laughs> it's one of the, one of the methodologies that are just, I'm telling you, anybody can do that, right? It's just, it's you buy and you, you know, you have somebody else float your mortgage for you. It's uh, I'm telling you, it's even in this market. I think, I think that's the one method that will work in almost any market. I don't, I don't care if the interest rates are high, interest rates are low, you know, <laughs> And, you know, I think a lot of people are intimidated by it. You know, I, I made a comment that, hey, I, I know how to manage property, so I feel comfortable doing it. But 
in the age of YouTube, I mean, <laughs> you lost podcasts, right? I mean, I know you all talked about it. Like, no one should feel like you don't have the tools to actually learn it and go in there knowledgeable, even though it's your first time. 20 years ago, that wasn't a thing, you know? If you didn't know somebody that was like really mentoring you and telling you how to do it, then you're going in blind. But I think there's a lot of resources in the digital age. I totally agree. I, I mean, like the, the amount of, like you said, it's it's right at our fingertips. There are many times, I don't really do repairs or anything like that anymore just because, you know, just for scaling purposes. But when I was in the nitty gritty of it, like there's a lot of times where I'm at a property and I'm YouTubing how to fix a toilet or how to replace a faucet. You know what I mean? And I'm just watching a video and then I do it immediately right there. Like it, it just takes effort. I, and I think that's what it is. Like, I mean, you have to be willing to, to get a little dirty and figure it out. Like, you know, like spend the time to do it. And I feel like that's the hope for this, right? Like, even if you're not getting in the nitty gritty and like fixing plumbing or changing electrical stuff or whatever, being willing to dive in and, and try out real estate and, you know, learn as you go, right? Like build a plane as it's, as it's flying. Right. So like, it's, it's a, it's invaluable, but, but it takes a, it takes a lot of guts to do it, you know? Guts and grind, baby. Um, <laughs> another curveball, last curveball for you is how can people connect with you? Is, is there a, is there a, a preferred social media that you kind of hang on or, or an email? Yeah. Um, call me directly or email below the link. You know, you know I love talking real, real estate to people. I believe in the power of sharing knowledge. I've started several different businesses, you know, ventures and kind of learning my way and even, you know, in the professional world and you run across people that don't share anything, people that just give you a little bit. And then there's people that's an open book. They're telling you the, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. That's me. I'm an open book. I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you the losses, the lumps, you know, the, the challenges what worked for me and I'll be realistic, you know, just because it didn't work for me doesn't mean it's not going to work for you or if I chose to go a different direction. So I, I enjoy talking to people that truly want to learn and gain knowledge and they're on this journey uh, to build uh, real estate wealth. Hey, I, I enjoy sharing everything I know. And, you know, I, I find that as a, a form of, of giving back, you know, for the, you know, the people that share things with me. That's awesome, man. Like, we're all about that as well. As you know, like, you know, we're doing this for that purpose, because I feel like there's a lot of people that just got rich quietly. And, and I understand it. Like, I'm not trying to knock anybody for doing that. But I feel like there's a lot of wealth to go around. And so we're by no means saying that we're the experts, and you have to do exactly what we say. But the idea is like, hey, if we share our story and if you resonate with our story, maybe you could learn something from it. Maybe you could grow it even bigger. Like, who knows? Like, like you, you could do anything. Like, it, it's limitless, really. But like, if we if we don't share it, like, it's, you know, it's invaluable, right? So we'll definitely uh, grab that information from you and put it in the show notes. I think we're going to wrap it up. Bo, thank you so much for, you know, just joining us and sharing your wealth and knowledge, man. Like, it was, it was great, man. I really appreciate it. And everyone that's watching, make sure you uh, subscribe and uh, comment. We want to hear your comments. Uh, let us know your thoughts. If you have any input as well, just throw it out there. But once again, thank you so much and see you on the next one. Take care, guys. Well. Thanks for listening to Guts and Grind with Siju and Sajin. Be sure to tune in next time.